Now, we bring you a world of adventure with... Rocky Jordan. I was sitting alone in my cafe tambourine when Paulette Martin came to my table. I remembered her from three years back. She was the kind you remember. But now she seemed scared, said she was being followed. Paulette showed me a large manila envelope, said what was inside was worth a lot of dough. I thought she was just playing cops and robbers for the excitement of it. But when she made a private phone call from my office and didn't come back fast enough, I got that old feeling that it was going to be one of those nights. I made for my office on the double. Paulette Martin was gone. She'd left the manila envelope with me for safekeeping. I tore it open. Inside were two x-ray plates. Down in the lower left-hand corner was the name Dr. Konstantin Markov. Then I remembered what I'd seen in the newspaper just an hour ago. Dr. Konstantin Markov had been found at 10 that morning in his office on the Sharia Romar. He'd been knifed to death. On a narrow street, not far off Cairo's native quarter, stands the Café Tambourine, run by Rocky Jordan. The Café Tambourine, crowded with forgotten men, alive with the babble of many languages. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. Tonight's Rocky Jordan story, Dr. Markov's Discovery. I slipped the x-ray plates in my desk drawer and walked around to the door leading into my cafe. A small gray-haired gent in a derby hat was standing at the bar. He was watching me over the rim of his glass. Then his mouth moved slightly. The two men who stood on either side of him with their backs to me turned slowly, leaned against the bar, peered at me through the smoke. Next week, it's the strange story, Butlers Can Be Innocent, about which Barry Craig has this to say. Butlers can be innocent. Maybe this is a little hard to believe, but the butler in question proves it the hard way. The National Broadcasting Company has just brought you an NBC Radio Network production with William Gargan, starring as Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator, directed by Andrew C. Love. Our cast included Jonathan Hole, Bibby Janis, Jim Nusser, Henry Hunter, and Howard Culver. Join Groucho Marx for You Bet Your Life tonight on the NBC Radio Network. Now from Hollywood, it's time for Edmund O'Brien as... Johnny Dollar. Mickey McQueen, Johnny. How are you? Oh, Mickey, I tried to phone you a couple of times. I never reached you. I'm out a lot these days, Johnny. Hey, I heard about your protection of Sergeant, Mickey. I'm nice going. Well, it is. 
I've got to talk to a friend about it. Will you be home tonight? You really sound worried, Mickey. What is it? Oh, nothing yet, Johnny, but there'll be murder before it's finished. My mind's made up. I want to talk to you about it. Well, sure, Mickey. I'll be here any time you want to come up. <laughs> Edmund O'Brien in another adventure of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. <laughs> expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to whom it may concern, Hartford Police Headquarters, Hartford, Connecticut. I don't expect you to honor this statement. But since the reports to my regular employers go in on these forms, the following is an accounting of my expenditures during my personal investigation of the Mickey McQueen matter. It's been my privilege to have worked a number of cases with Mickey McQueen here in Hartford. And through the years, a friendship developed between us. So when he phoned Tuesday night to say he wanted to talk to me, I was glad to ask him over. But when it got to be 1.30 in the morning and he still hadn't arrived, I wasn't so glad. He arrived at 2. I'm sorry I'm late, Johnny. Yeah. Oh, what held you up? I was about to drop off. I had to think, Johnny. Ah, oh, you're in uniform, Mickey. What about your beat? My beat? My beat won't miss me. After 20 years of walking it from dark to dawn, checking its doors and passing the time of night with its people, drunk and sober. Yeah. Well, is it too late for a drink, Mick? I got your brand, some Irish. Yes, that was good of you. I, I've been a good policeman, Johnny. I can say that without sounding like I'm stuck on myself, can't I now? Well, I've never heard anybody say anything else, Mickey. Well, I've got more friends to my credit than I have arrests, I'll say that. But I've got a quiet beat. I think there are quieter beats in town. Maybe you're lucky. Here's to it. All right. But be careful what it is. There's murder being done and planned right this minute, Johnny. Them that can stop it don't have the heart right or wrong. What are you talking about, Mickey? I know what I'm talking about. Are you feeling all right? Feeling all right? I'm as healthy as I was yesterday, ain't I now? I didn't see you yesterday. If they're taking my job, put me behind the desk... The grading in for a man that's been active for 20 years. After 20 years on your feet, you should take a rest. You've earned one. The very words of commission, Johnny. But, Johnny, I... Yeah, Mickey? Ah, never mind. The devil take them all. I've used up enough of your time. Wait a minute. You came over to talk about something more than your new job. What's this stuff about murder being planned and being done? I shouldn't have said it. I wish you'd forget it. What's the matter with you? You know me well enough to tell me, and you know me well enough to know I'll keep any confidence you want me to keep. You're a good friend, Johnny. Maybe that's why I changed my mind about telling you. And why'd you come over? Because I thought I was going to talk to you. But I'm not. Hmm? All right, it's your business. But you're acting like a kid, Mickey. Now, if you don't have anything to say to me, it's after two. I may have a job in the morning. All right, Johnny. I'm sorry I bothered you. I'll say good night. I didn't sleep very well for the rest of the night. The sort of a half-dozed parts of Mickey's conversation kept coming back to me. And the more sleep I lost over it, 
The more I wished I'd been less grumpy and more sympathetic. There wasn't a job for me the next day, and right after noon, I decided to drop by his apartment and find out his mood when he was off duty. Mickey's apartment occupied the ground floor of a house not far from mine. I could hear a woman crying somewhere inside. I smelled domestic trouble, but I pushed the buzzer anyway. Are you the... Yeah, I'm Johnny Dollar, a friend of Mr. McQueen. Oh, yes. Johnny Dollar. He said to phone you if I ever needed... Is he home? In there. She pointed in the direction of a door smaller than the outside door. The door to either a bathroom or a closet. The clothes were bunched at one end of the rod. And from the other, still in uniform, his own polished leather belt drawn tightly around his neck, hung Mickey McQueen. I walked back into the lace-curtained living room. The girl who had let me in didn't go with the furnishings. She was young, attractive, and her shoulder-length white blonde hair might have been natural. She had stopped crying, and she acted as if she were waiting for me to start something. Well, what about it? You explain yourself, or do I get three guesses? Never mind that look. I only live here. Ah. Well, I didn't know Mickey had a daughter. Thanks for the compliment, but I'm his wife. I uh, didn't know he had a wife, either. Maybe he was ashamed of me. My name's Thelma. I'm sorry, Thelma. You an old friend of Mickey's? Yeah, but he never told me about you. Have you seen him lately? Last night. First he phoned me, then he came by to talk to me. What did he say? I'm not sure. He was pretty handy with double talk. Maybe I was supposed to understand it, but I didn't. What was it about? About his job, the change he was making, and something about murders being planned and done, and nobody doing anything to stop them. Then he didn't tell you. What? That I was leaving him. He's never mentioned you. Why were you leaving him? Because it was all wrong. I never should have married him in the first place. Why did you? Because he was the kindest, most... Wonderful man who ever lived. Does that answer your question? Not quite. Is there more? Did you know his first wife? Yeah. And I guess you know he took her death pretty hard. They'd been married ten years. I met him after she died. He was lonely and I was... He was pretty wonderful to me. I thought I could help him. It wasn't because of him I was leaving. It was me. But I never thought he'd do this. I don't think he did. What do you mean? I think he was murdered. But why? When did you find him? I came home about a half an hour before you got here. Did you phone the police? No, not yet. I didn't know what to do. Well, where had you been? I told you I was leaving him. I've been living in a hotel. Does it matter? Why'd you come back? Because some things I'd left. Why are you asking me these things? When it's murder, there's bound to be a lot of questions. I don't think it was. Everybody loved him. He didn't have an enemy in the world. Why would anybody want to kill a man like Mickey McQueen? I didn't have an answer for that, but I started there in the house to try to find one. 
If it was murder by hanging, I knew it couldn't have been committed without a fight. But a half-hour search didn't uncover any traces of a struggle. I phoned in a report and left Thelma and the apartment. For the rest of the day, I tried to talk myself into leaving the matter in the hands of the police where it belonged. But I couldn't do it. That night, I started making the rounds of Mickey's beat. I talked to a corner magazine vendor who had sold him a dime mystery. A woman in a cigar store who had talked with him. And a cabbie who had borrowed five bucks from him. None of them gave me anything helpful. My next stop was the Cedric Hotel, where I looked up the house detective, Ned Martin. Oh, Dollar, what are you doing in this end of town? Looking for work? How are you, Martin? I got a night off. I'm taking a postman's holiday. Did you hear about Mickey? His promotion? Yeah, he deserved it. I didn't mean that. He's dead. Now, what happened? He was found hanging in his own clothes closet. The devil. Come on in the office where we can talk. Sit down. Oh, Mickey, I'll miss him. So will I. Uh, did you see him last night? Yeah, he dropped in. He always did once or twice a night. Just to shoot the breeze, you know. Why'd he do it? Did he leave a note or anything? I think he was murdered. What makes you say that? He came over to see me about 2.30 this morning. There was something on his mind. He wanted to talk, but he wouldn't. That figures. What do you mean? I noticed something about him last night. He was real low. I asked him what was the matter. He said it was because it was his last night on his beat. He was supposed to check into his new job today, but eh, that didn't sound right to me. Did you know he had a wife? Yeah, I heard about it, and then I hounded him until he showed me her picture. Platinum blonde? Yeah, it looked like it. And young. I didn't want to embarrass him by asking, but I wondered about her. What makes you think it was murder, Dollar? Well, do you think Mickey was the type to kill himself? No, no, but how can you tell? Uh, I guess you can't. All you can do is try to find out. Well, if you don't have anything more, I'll be on my way. Wait a minute. Hmm? I guess it was a dirty trick, and I wish I hadn't done it, but I snooped that marriage. I found out who she was. Her name was Selma Weaver. She did a couple of years in Joliet. Where'd you get that? Well, things like that don't stay hidden. I'd drop it if I were you. I really would. What are you holding out on me? It's for your own good, Johnny. I'll shake it out of you if oh. I have to. <laughs> okay, hero. You know Fred Coo, the Calcutta Club over on Bartlett? I know of him. He's a police informer, isn't he? Part-time. If you won't take my advice and forget it, go talk to him. And don't tell him who sent you. <laughs> Fred Coo is with the Parkman nose is half oriental. The decor in his joint to Calcutta is Indian because he can get the effect with no more expensive decoration than reed matting and coconut husks. The place was small and was jammed when I got there by a crowd that was largely male. I didn't recognize a face, but from the atmosphere, I got the feeling I could have retired on 10% of the bail bonds they bought in their time. I found Fred Coo leaning against the potted palm. What do you want? I want to talk to you about Mickey McQueen. Uh, do you have an office? You a cop, too? Only a private one. As a friend of Mickey's. Oh, sure. Roy. Yes? I'm in my office for a little while. If there's any trouble, you buzz me. What is that? Come on, uh, this way. Yeah, 
quite a crowd tonight, Fred. Oh, sure. Sometimes I get a lot of out-of-town trade. Mm-hmm. Did you see Mickey last night? No, I didn't. I get along fine with Mickey. He won't take any payoff, but he doesn't push me around. Ah, uh, how is he? You know his wife? His wife? I didn't even know he was married. Her name was Thelma Weaver before Mickey married her. She did some time in Joliet. Oh? Well, why do you bother me with this? I got work to do. You knew Mickey was dead. No, I did not know that. I don't see how it would be enough, but it struck me that if somebody knew he was married to an ex-con, they might try to use the information. I suppose you're right. Yeah? Roy, Fred, I think you'd better come out. Important? Yes, I think so. Be right out. Pardon me, Dollar. A uh, little trouble outside. Uh, you wait here. I'll come right back. I waited. And while I did, I took a quick look around the office for another way out in case I might need it. There wasn't any unless the steel door on one of the walls was it. But before I could try it, the other door opened. I wasn't expecting Fred Crew to return so quickly, and neither was I expecting who did come in. I... I didn't expect to find you here, Mr. Dollar. Likewise, Mrs. McQueen. I was looking for Mr. Crew. What for? I thought I might help. Mickey kept this notebook, you see, where he wrote down all the places he stopped when he made his rounds. This place was one of them. I thought if I could talk to this Mr. Crew. Do you know Fred Crew? I know. Do you know anybody named Weaver? Selma Weaver? All right, mister, that's enough. Reach. Don't be crazy. What good would that do? Stay where you are and don't try anything. I really mean it. She looked like she really meant it. It was a small revolver, Colt 25. I didn't know whether she'd come in meaning to use it on Fred Koo or me, but it didn't make much difference. At the moment, she had it pointed at my midsection. You're a little out of your territory. What's the matter, take the wrong streetcar? Shall we go, Mr. Jordan? Mind telling me where? You have a choice. A choice? Yes. Police headquarters or the morgue. When we got to police headquarters, Sam Sabaya was standing in the hall next to the water cooler. He and the colonel got their heads together for a moment, and then we all walked into Sam's office. The two gorillas stationed themselves at the door. Sam dropped into his swivel chair. The colonel started pacing the room. He seemed a little disappointed. This man, Jordan, Captain Sabaya. Yes, yes, I know him, Colonel. Very well. Better luck next time, Colonel. It appears that he and the girl, uh, Paulette Martin... Ah, a woman. Yes, I might have known. I followed her to the cafe. This uh, cafe at... Um, Tambourine. Yes, as I was saying, Captain, I followed the girl to the cafe. She turned over an envelope to Jordan. Then Colonel... She... Yes? She didn't turn it over. She left it in the booth. And then she went into your office, is that right? Yeah, she went to make a phone call. When she didn't come back, You I... followed her. Later, you came out with the envelope under your arm. Sure. I went over to the Victoria Hospital. What happened to her, Jordan? I don't know. She ducked or somebody grabbed her out of my office. What were you and the girl up to, Jordan? Look, I hadn't seen Paulette Martin in over three years. Tonight she waltzed into my place with an envelope and gave me a pitch about joining her in some deal. What sort of a deal? She didn't get around to tell me. She went to my office to use the phone, and that's the last I saw of her. Jordan, what was in the envelope? Oh, a couple of x-rays, Sam. X-rays? What sort of x-rays? Just plain x-rays. Some guy's stomach. A stomach? 
Jordan, this is no time. Sam, I'm telling uh, you. Just a moment. Uh, Jordan, where are those x-rays? I don't know. Somebody grabbed them away from me at the hospital. Uh, huh. So somebody took them away from you, huh? Just like that. <laughs> the x-rays, Jordan. Were they from Dr. Markov's office? Uh, yeah. And the patient's name, it was also on the x-ray? I, uh, I don't remember. Look, would you mind telling me something? What is that? Why are the Istanbul police so interested in this routine? You do not know, of course. A lot of things I don't know about this, including why a guy's stomach is so important, how Paulette Martin got mixed up in this deal, and why she came to me. Just a minute. You did not know that Paulette Martin worked in Dr. Markov's office? No, I didn't know that. She was his receptionist. But, of course, you would not know now. You said you had not seen her in the last five years. Three. Yes. You still haven't answered my question, Colonel. Why is the Istanbul police interested? I don't intend to. Perhaps Captain Savai will tell you if he's so inclined. At the moment, I have work to do. Uh, Captain, I would like to talk to you for a moment uh, in private. Uh, yes, yes, of course, Colonel. <laughs> And with that, the colonel's two boys eased me out of the office into the hall. We sat down on the bench and waited. Ten minutes later, the door opened and the little colonel strutted out. He didn't even look at me as he went past. His two boys jumped up and trailed after him down the hall and out into the street. And that was that. I walked over to Sam's office. Sam was in his chair again. Come in, Jordan. Look, Sam, I love that guy, but what's he doing down here? Cairo's in Egypt, not Turkey. It concerns the murder of Dr. Markov. Sit down, Jordan, sit down. Okay, shoot. About a week ago, Dr. Markov sent a wire to the Istanbul police requesting information of a very clever and dangerous convict named Brezak. Brezak? He died about five years ago, didn't he? Well, yes. After his escape from prison in Istanbul, he was drowned in the Black Sea. But there was never any positive proof that he actually was dead. The body was never recovered. So now, five years later, Dr. Markov, here in Cairo, suddenly starts asking questions about Brezak. What's he want to know, Sam? Merely if there was a possibility that Brezak was still alive. Nothing more. And the Istanbul police replied to the wire by sending down one of its prized bloodhounds. There's a thing underneath the doorknob there. You slide it over. Oh, yeah. You're Barry Craig. Yeah. You're not doing very well, are you? I could write my name on the dust in your desk. What name would that be? Wilma Lord. How do you do, Miss Lord? Mr. Craig, have you ever killed anyone? Not for a fee. Will you answer a question about the weather? I don't know much about the weather. Why'd you lock the door behind you, Miss Lord? I can't have anybody see me here. There's a woman comes around a couple of times a week. I'll speak to her about the dust. Oh, that's not... I'm going to marry a man named John Waring. Uh-huh. He's older than I am, a lot older. It's a question of taste. He's rich. Sweetens the taste. We're going to be married in a few weeks. I want nothing to happen to that marriage. I'll hire you. Cupid Craig, with a dollar sign in front of the Cupid. What do you think might happen? Death. Something wrong with Waring's health? You've heard of murder, haven't you? I've heard of it. Whose murder, yours or Waring's? <gasps> the door's locked. Whose murder? I can't say. Is there another way out? Back of the water cooler. Leads to the back hallway and the fire stairs. I- I'll phone you. Sure. Yeah? Get, get out of my way. 
That gun a little heavy for you? I said. Okay. Well? But they... Where's the dame? You don't look too good. Where is she? Got a name for her? The dame. Walked in the eye, seen her. And now you want to take another look? Wanna give her back a knife? Knife? The floor stopped him. I kicked the door shut behind him. The knife he'd mentioned was angling out between his shoulder blades. I didn't want anybody to confuse him with a client. The homicide squad arrived and went to work. I don't like watching the boys. They're too smooth. I start thinking of all the stiffs they practiced on. I shut my eyes. Are we boring you, Craig? Lieutenant Rogers, I've seen it all before. Too bad. If only we could work out an entirely new approach. Then perhaps you'd watch us, hmm? Stop being so tough, Trav. Everybody's forgiven you for having gone to college. Thanks. You're welcome. Craig, the story's no good. The only one I've got on hand. I'll tell you why it's no good. The punk there with a knife in his back was on the Harry Otis payroll. Oh? Well, my lord is on the Otis payroll. Must be a large payroll. Among his varied and largely illegal activities, Otis also runs a supper club over on the east side. The Gilded Lily. Mm-hmm. You can have Wilma Lord for supper there six nights a week and twice on Sundays. It's too early for supper. The last couple of months, Otis has been very busy. Hovering up. The Crime Commission? The Crime Commission. Mr. Otis is a very large target for them. He's been doing his best to shrink recently. Wilma Lord could have come to you because she planned to concertize with the commission and wanted protection. Why me? You're big. You're good-natured. And, uh, well... I'm stupid? No, no, no. But you like to believe people when they give you a chance to. What about the wearing angle? Did she pick him out of the phone book? There is no wearing angle. John Waring happens to be a distinguished philanthropist. That means a guy with so much money he even gives some of it away. Thanks for the translations. I still believe Wilma Lord's story. Why? Because she's young, beautiful... Because she looked you straight in the eye when she told you all? <laughs> no, Tram. Because she was nasty. Homicide wound up and went away. One nice thing about it, after they were through, the office no longer needed dusting. The clock in the church tower across the street made noises. So, after a while, did my stomach. But I was waiting for a phone call. Maybe the cops would get Wilma Lord before she... Dr. <clears throat> Markoff. He's dead, sir. Just this morning. I read about it. Sir. Yes, I know. He took some x-rays of you recently, didn't he? X-rays? Yeah, indeed, sir. Indeed he did. But how did you know? A doll named Paulette Martin waltzed into my cafe tonight. She said they were worth a lot of dough. Any idea why? See here, Mr. Jordan. Is this some sort of a... Uh, excuse me. I don't think so, Griswold. I took the x-rays over to a friend of mine at the Victoria Hospital. On the way out, I was slugged and relieved of the x-rays. I don't understand, sir. Why would anyone go to all that trouble for x-rays of my... My gadget? It's preposterous. I must say, I don't like the idea of my... Excuse me, my stomach being battered about Cairo from pillar to post in this manner. No, sir. I don't enjoy it one bit. Rather indecent, don't you think? After all... All right, all right, Griswold. Relax. I think I see the pitch. Sorry I bothered you. Uh, one moment, sir. I... 
Uh, I want no more of that. Some other time, Griswold. I'm in a hurry. See you around. I went back out into the street. George, the cabbie, was sitting on the front steps of the house waiting for me. We, we were successful, Mr. Jordan. We were, George. We were. Now, do you know where Dr. Nuruddin lives? Dr. Nur... The famous surgeon? Yeah, yeah. No, Mr. Jordan. But I'm sure you will have no difficulty. So am I, George. Okay, hoist up your puttees and let's away to the nearest telephone booth. If anybody would know about unusual x-rays, it would be the surgeon, Nuruddin. At 9.45, I was ushered into his study. At 10 o'clock, Dr. Nuruddin and I had a glass of sherry. And at precisely 10.15, I left with a small pencil sketch he had made. It was the kicker to the case, and I tucked it safely away in my breast pocket. Five minutes later, I put in a call to Captain Sam Sabaya. Yes, yes, Jordan. What is it now? Uh, meet me at Dr. Markoff's office in ten minutes, Sam. I'll tell you all about it then. Oh, and bring the key. Just a minute, Jordan. Bring I'm... the key, Sam. Bring the office key. <laughs> Sam was already standing at the entrance to the small office building in the Sharia Romar when I got there. We went inside and started across the lobby. Well, Jordan, what is this all about? Oh, it was a sucker play from the start, Sam. A little Paulette started it. The x-ray plates she slipped me were phonies. It dawned on me while I was talking to Griswold. Griswold? Who is Griswold? The guy with a stomach. But he doesn't figure. Now, see how this shapes up. Paulette Martin has the real plates. She's holding on to them, see? Mm -hmm. When the doc gets bumped, she gets scared, figuring she's next. Mm -hmm. To throw the murderer off her trail, she picks up a phony set of plates from the office, Griswold's, and waltzes into my cafe with them. I see. Now, sure, while the murder's trailing me, Paulette slips away with the real plates. Mm -hmm. oh, here is Dr. Markov's office. Now, what do you want in here, Jordan? Fast browse through the good doctor's files. Oh. Oh, hold it, Sam. What's the matter? Somebody's coming up the stairs. Come on, let's get out of sight. A few seconds later, a woman came into the corridor. It wasn't Paulette Martin, and she stopped in front of Markov's office. She stood there looking at the name on the door raised her hand slowly and gently brushed the gold lettering with her fingertips. Then she opened her purse, took out a key, unlocked the door, and went inside. Hmm. I wonder what she's doing here. You know her, Sam? Yes. Her name is Anita Loman. She was Dr. Markov's nurse, came back from Alexandria this morning in time to discover his body. How'd she take it? Uh, badly. I think she... I think she was in love with the doctor. Huh? You sure she was in Alexandria last night? Oh, yes, yes. We checked it. Come on. Nurse Loman was standing before a filing cabinet with half a dozen manila folders in her hand when we walked in. She turned slowly, then gave out with a thin little smile. Oh, Captain Sabaya, I'm glad you're here. Good evening, Miss Loman. Uh, this is Mr. Jordan. Miss Loman? How do you do, Mr. Jordan? Captain Sabaya, when I spoke to you at headquarters this morning, I... I was terribly upset. Yes, I, yes, I know. I don't know why I didn't think of it before, but... Well, the shock of finding... Finding Dr. Markov. You have uncovered something, Miss Lomang? I believe so. It suddenly came to me this afternoon. I was trying to find some reason why... Why anyone would want to take Dr. Markov's life. And then I suddenly remembered. The day before I left for Alexandria, a man went in to see Dr. Markov... They were in the doctor's private office for quite some time. This man sounded very angry. He, he seemed to be after some X-rays. Go on, Miss Lomang. 
This man's name, do you remember? I, I'm not certain. If I could only find the files, they, they seem to have been rearranged. Yeah, I'd say the murderer took care of that. What did he look like? Oh, he was slender, middle-aged. I saw him only twice, the day he was brought in, but... A moment, Miss Lamont. You say he was brought in? Yes. It was late afternoon. There was an accident in the street. This man was hit by an automobile. He wasn't seriously hurt, though quite dazed. After he was brought in, he complained of pains in his head. And Dr. Markov took x-rays? Yes. A short time later, however, the man seemed perfectly normal. Doctor sent him home and told him he'd be around to see him that evening. If I could only find those x-rays... Oh, I... you won't, Miss Loman, but... Uh, here, take a look at this. Would the x-rays look something like this? I took the piece of paper Dr. Nouradine had given me out of my pocket and spread it out on the desk. On it was drawn the head of a man in profile. Directly behind the ear at the base of the skull was a small area shaded in red pencil. The girl began studying it. Jordan, where did you get this paper? Dr. Nouradine. You've heard of the surgeon, haven't you, Sam? I went over to see him before I called you on the phone. He drew the sketch for me, describing an operation that was performed over 12 years ago in Prague. An operation? Yeah, on this guy, Brazak. Well, this was several years before he went to prison. Brazak was hurt in a hunting accident. His family had a lot of dough, and they hired a surgeon from Vienna. This is his work, Sam. Uh, Mr. Jordan, this shaded area behind the ear... That's what... a silver plate, Miss Loman. Brazak has a silver plate in his skull. Colonel Bukhar didn't mention that to you, did he, Sam? Uh, how did Dr. Nuradine know all this? Well, the operation was widely discussed years ago. It appeared in a flock of medical journals. Seems there was a little criticism here and there, the... Operation wasn't too successful. It wasn't? But Brazak... Oh, sure. Brazak pulled through okay and resumed his role as playboy of the Balkans. But the plate gave him trouble from time to time. Nothing serious. You say all this took place before he went to prison. What did he... Well, he got mixed up in a little deal in Istanbul later. Politics and the death of a countess named Montclair. Brazak was sent to prison for life. He'd only served a few years when he escaped and was supposed to have drowned in the Black Sea. Well, then, Mr. Jordan... Does this mean that this man, Brazak, is still alive? That, that you're able to identify him by this, this silver plate? If we had the x-rays, this piece of work could probably be identified as easily as if the surgeon had signed his name on the silver plate. That's what made your Dr. Markov send the wire to the Istanbul police requesting information of Brazak. Now, if we had the x-ray plates with the patient's name Look, on Look, Sam, it... we're wasting time. There's still an outside chance we can grab Paulette Martin before she skips. Perhaps she doesn't intend to skip. All right, we'll try both angles. Sam got to work on the phone and told his boys to cover the airports, train, and bus depots. From Nurse Lomond, I got half a dozen addresses where Paulette might be holding in. Sam picked out three addresses and raced off in the police car. Armed with the other three, George, the cabbie, and I took off. George and I connected on the second address, a small three-story apartment house alongside the Dorchester Tower building. Paulette was just coming out of the apartment house when she saw us. She had a good head start, and by the time we pulled up, she ducked into the tower building. When we raced into the lobby, a scrubwoman was standing there with her hands on her hips, muttering to herself and looking up the stairway. Mr. Jordan, this way, up this stairs. Look, George, I'll take the stairs. You grab one of the elevators. Go up to the top floor and work down. You get it? Yes, yes, I understand, Mr. George. It was rough going by the time it hit the sixth floor. I could hear Paulette above me racing up the stairs. Then I stopped. I couldn't hear her anymore. I eased up to the seventh floor slowly. On the next landing, I found her shoes. Paulette was doing better now in her stocking feet. 
On the tenth floor, I ran into George. Mr. Jordan, did you see her? Ah, the, the dame runs like a deer. Come on, George, let's go back up. She must be up there. Perhaps the roof, Mr. Jordan. It is possible... Yeah, here, come on. When we reached the roof, it was deserted. We eased up the tower and directly under the huge clock. At the head of the spiral stairway was a door. We walked into the small room. The light was on, but the room was empty. As we started to turn around, the door slammed shut. We were locked in. Mr. Jordan, the ladder there. Perhaps we can get above. Okay, George, you try it. I'll see what I can do on this door. Yes, yes, there must be some way. For an instant, I didn't know what had happened. The shock had jarred the room like it was built on a plate of jello. Then I remembered we were directly under the huge bell of Dorchester Towers, Cairo's version of the Big Ben. I shook the sound out of my brain and looked at my watch. Quarter to twelve. Then I looked over at George, the grinning cab driver. He wasn't grinning now. He was flattened out against the wall, his face gray with fear, and there was a wild look in his eyes. Mr. Jordan, we must get out of here. We must get out of here. Yeah, yeah, relax, George. We got 15 minutes before the bell opens up again. 15 minutes? 15 minutes? Yeah, it's quarter to 12 now. Midnight, we're in for another session. Unless we can... No! No! We must get out of here! Well, I was in favor of that, too. But I didn't see any reason to get so excited about it. George scurried up the ladder and tried to open the trap door. It didn't budge. I went to work on the other door with my knife. All I came up with after ten minutes was a couple of broken blades. George kept clawing at the trap overhead, but he wasn't getting anywhere. He was like a wild man now. The minutes ticked by. George threw both hands over his ears and crouched in the corner of the room. Then it hit again. George dropped to his knees, shook his head, then staggered to his feet like a drunken man. He fell against the wall, covered his face with his... Featured in the role of Wilma was Elspeth Arick. Barry Craig, starring William Gargan, is under the direction of Simon Brown. This is Don Pardo speaking. It's the Silver Jubilee on NBC. This Sunday night, be sure to hear The Big Show with a full 90 minutes of outstanding entertainment. This Sunday, The Big Show will present such stars as Sophie Tucker, Morton Downey, Ann Sheridan, Jerry Lester, and your glamorous, unpredictable hostess, Tallulah Bankhead. The Big Show brings you a sparkling program presenting drama, comedy, music, everything to provide you with the biggest show in radio. Yes, for people in the know, Sunday means The Big Show on NBC. Then later, Sunday night, Theater Guild on the Air presents Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton, starring lovely Claudette Colbert and MacDonald Carey. Yes, there's 60 minutes of top-flight drama coming your way this Sunday as Theater Guild on the Air brings you Age of Innocence. And for photos as well as feature articles on your favorite NBC stars, be sure to buy the current NBC Silver Jubilee issue of Radio TV Mirror Magazine. This Sunday... Hear the best, hear the big show, and Theater Guild on the air, both on this, your NBC station. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. 
Orloff, Mr. Dollar, at Continental Insurance Company in New York. Oh, yes, Mr. Orloff. What can I do for you? Did you ever hear of a place called Virtue? Are you kidding? I'm very serious. Oh, wait a minute. Virtue, South Carolina? That's right. You, uh, want me to go down there? Yes, if you will. <laughs> do you have a bulletproof vest and a couple of extra handguns I can take along? Well, my one suggestion would be that you do not take along any firearms. After all, ex-gangster... Yeah, I see what you mean. All right, what do you want me to do? Our representative has his office in Georgetown. He can give you the whole story. His name is Joseph Pigatello. Got it, Joseph Pigatello. Smokey Pigatello? The guy whose name was linked with Murder Incorporated a few years back? Yes, Dollar Joe Smokey Pigatello. You, uh, sure you want this assignment? Well, I'll tell you this, Mr. Orloff. Yes? If you don't have to pay off on my insurance policy before I'm through... Well, mister, this is going to cost you a whopping big expense account. Bob Bailey in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Continental Insurance Company, Georgetown, South Carolina office. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Village of Virtue matter. Expense account item one, $47 even, transportation and all the incidentals I could think of, Hartford, Connecticut to Georgetown, South Carolina. Item two, a dollar for a cab to Continental's office on Screven Street. Hi, Dollar. I'm Joe Pigatello. Glad to see you. Sit down. Thanks. Now, look, Joe, before we go into this matter, there's something I'd like to know. <laughs> sure, pal. Ask it. Just what are you doing in the insurance business? Look, you remember back in New York just before Tom Dewey took over as DA? The great holy racket buster? Yeah, and I'm sure you do. Okay. Well, I was just a young punk then, but I was a bright one. Ambitious, you know. Finished up my high school, started taking law. You studied law? Why not? I could have cleaned up. You know, mouthpiece of some of the mob, some of the boys I knocked around with. But then Dewey came along, broke up the racket, so I gave it up. To do what, Joe? Oh, you know, this and that. Chicago for a while with some of the boys Al Capone left behind. Then down near the border at San Diego for a while. Smuggling then... narcotics across from Mexico? Then some of us tried Las Vegas, and we didn't get any... What was that crack? Well? Listen, I'm clean. You make a crack like that, you can prove it, okay. If you can't, don't say it. You were telling me how you got into the insurance business. All right. When I'm taking you on this case, don't talk like that. The gents I deal with don't like it. And don't forget, whatever you think about them, you could also be wrong. Okay, Joe. Two kinds of wrong, Dollar. Just plain wrong and dead wrong. You see what I mean? All right, as I was saying, uh, how I got in this insurance racket. As you were saying. Well, some of the boys from New York and Chicago went around did pretty good. Instead of blowing all that dough on booze and dames and big times, they were smart. They leased an old plantation up in the valley north of here on the P.D. River. The old Caraway Plantation. It's right next to the town of Virtue. Great name for a hideout, I'll say that. I didn't say hideout, Dollar. It was just a nice, quiet place where they could live it up in a nice, quiet way. And at the same time, they wouldn't have any cops around their neck. No police in Virtue? <laughs> Nobody but old Polly Caraway. Anyhow, after six, eight months of taking it easy, mint juleps and hunting and fishing instead of being on the lamb all the time, well, Johnny, you wouldn't believe it. What do you mean? 
Well, they all settled down there to spend the rest of their life. They all went respectable. Every last one of them. You sure of that? Well, it's been 20 years now. Can you be any more sure than that? I don't know. But uh, go on with what you were saying. All right. I-, I got an idea. I signed up with this little insurance company. Then I went up to Virtue and made the pitch. They're all respectable now, and they got to make like respectable people and cover themselves with a lot of insurance. And it worked? <laughs> you remember Lefty Stemper? The old-time numbers king from Chicago? Right. Bookies, slot machines, everything. Oh, pal of mine. So when he told the rest he was buying insurance, well, Johnny, I got policies on every one of them. The rest of the town, too. On their life, their homes, everything. Okay, now let's get to the point. What's happened up there in Virtue? Trouble, Johnny. Old man Carraway phoned me. What kind of trouble? Well, 20 years now, the boys and the people in Virtue have been getting along fine. The boys have been behaving themselves, and the, the people in town are all nice people. Until a couple of weeks ago. What happened? Willie Magoon had himself a nice little fishing boat. Had it ever since he went straight and moved in up there. 20 years ago. Now somebody stole it. Well, why don't you just pay off his claim and forget it? Listen, a couple of days after that, Mr. Avery, that runs the general store in Virtue, had his boat stolen. So you'll have to pay another claim. But small ones, Joe. Well, will you listen? Ever since then, not a day has gone by that somebody hasn't had something stolen from him. Mostly the people in Virtue. Boats, cars, money, furniture, anything you can think of. The people blame the boys, and the boys blame the people. And, Johnny, there's going to be a civil war in Virtue unless somebody finds out who's doing this. And if that happens, there's going to be a lot of killing. And, well, with all the insurance I've sold, me and the company are going to be in trouble. Well, can't you get the state police to come in? State police? Invite you? You said it's a real respectable community now. Yeah, sure it is. But, well, dragging them in might really start things off. That's why I had to send for you. <sighs> Look, why don't we go up there so I can see for myself? <laughs> sure, Johnny, sure. But, hey, uh, open your coat. What? Huh? I mean, if you're going to take along that lemon squeezer, well, take my advice and don't. <laughs> You have a pretty sharp eye, Joe. Johnny, boy, I can spot a shoulder holster a mile away. But so can some of the boys up in the valley on the plantation. And I don't want you to end up with a slug between your eyes. Real respectable people. Well, uh, shall we go? Uh, my car's outside. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Huh? At least a couple of them. What are you talking about? Uh, nothing, Joe. Let's go. Act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, in a moment. Our flag now numbers 50 stars, and behind each star, there stands yet another flag representing one of the 50 states. Florida state flag bears the Red Cross of St. Andrew in sympathy with the flag of the Confederacy on a field of white. Centered over the cross is the state seal. Within a golden circle, the sun, an emblem of glory and splendor representing absolute authority, peers over a highland in the distance. Flowers, a symbol of hope and joy, are scattered by an Indian maiden, indicative of the Indian influence within the state. Centered is the cocoa or palm tree, an emblem of victory, justice, and royal honor. Florida state flag, the flag of the 27th state to enter the Union, was adopted in 1900. And now, act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Village of Virtue Matter. Joe Pigatello, erstwhile gangster turned insurance agent, led me out to his car and we headed north out of Georgetown, South Carolina. After 20 miles or so, we swung onto a side road paralleling the P.D. River. And finally, we came to the old Caraway Plantation. Acres and acres of huge old live oak trees festooned with Spanish moss. Flowers, millions of them. Azaleas, iris, roses, rhododendron bushes aflame with color in the afternoon sun. 
Then, at the end of a broad, tree-lined path, the fine old colonial mansion with its towering pillars. The property faced the curving, lazy yellow river. And lying across it was a broad expanse of marshy grass, crisscrossed here and there by canals, through which the slaves in olden times hauled the rice crop to the riverboats. Yeah, it was a beautiful spot. A calm, quiet, peaceful spot, apparently. Well, here we are, Johnny. Let's go in to see if anybody... What? Hey, hey, hold it, hold it, you punk! It's me, Smokey! Smokey! Who else? Put those guns away! You want to get in trouble? Don't you guys know no better to come barging in this way without letting us know you're coming? Come on, Johnny. Sure. <sighs> nice, peaceful spot, huh? Who's that you got with you, Smokey? Boys, this is Johnny Dollar. He's from the insurance company. Uh, Johnny, uh, this is Bo Magoon. Yeah. Hi. And uh, this is Lefty Stemper. Hi, Johnny Dollar, huh? And the shrimp there is Slippy Lakovich. Hiya, J Johnny. I'm pleased to meet you. What? That's away from me. What did you bring here, Smokey? A dick or something? Yeah, Dollar. What's the idea of packing a ride? All right, all right. Let him go, you guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Look, he's on our side. He's up here to find the stuff that's been stolen. Yeah. We don't need no outside help. Oh, you've uh, found who's behind the thefts, huh, Lefty? No. If it's any of your business, it is I don't... my business. You're interrupting me. Yeah, Dollar, shut up. I say we'll find out who's coming over here for virtue and taking our stuff ourselves. And when we do, we'll eliminate them. Right back to the old days, huh? If we got to, to protect our rights. How about letting me have my gun? Well? Here, that flippy, he wants his gun. <laughs> <laughs> you make a move to Dollar and I'll flip you so fast that Oh, you'll... you mean like this? <laughs> Hey, 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 it's Flippy got flipped. <laughs> Attaboy, Johnny. Yeah, the shrimp finally got it. Hey, Johnny Dolly, you're okay. Anybody else want to get smart? Uh, he, he caught me off of the guy. You're an expert, have Flippy? Well, you ain't anymore. Now, Lefty, I'll take my gun. Oh, oh sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're okay, Johnny Dolly. All right, now let's get things straight. I'm not the cops, but I'll drag him in if necessary. Oh, now listen. You listen. I'm going to try to stop what's going on around here, and if any one of you interferes, I'll have you locked up so fast you won't know what's happened to you. Now, now wait a minute. Now, listen to me, will you, Dollar? Well, look, I, I guess we're all kind of shaky. You know, we're... <clears throat> well, we, we're sort of uh, somewhat upset by the events of the past couple of weeks or two. You, you know what I mean? Lefty... Joe told me that if the burglaries, robberies, whatever they are, go on much longer, there's liable to be a war between you and the people of the town. Well, you ain't worried. No, we got enough guns and ammo stashed away around this. Shut up, bull. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, Lefty, sure. I'm sure you have. But if you ever expect to make peace again with the townspeople, if you expect to stay on here... We got at least 15 years to go. Shut up. Okay. All right, look. <clears throat> All we got here is our uh, hunting rifles and with shotguns and... Uh, Couple of pistols, in case of a snake, you know, while we're hunting or fishing here in the swamps. <clears throat> a lot of cottonmouths around here, you know. Yeah, that's a fact, Johnny. The point is, I didn't come here without providing for any and every exigency. Uh, what's that mean? Oh, boy, what a dope. <clears throat> it means if anything happens to him, we're dead. Now, uh, ain't that... Excuse me. Uh, isn't that right, Dollar? Right. You see... Now, give me a hand, cooperate with me, and maybe we can clear this thing up. Don't, and I have only one alternative. What's that mean? Shut up. And that's to have you legally ousted from here, out of the state if necessary. Oh, now, look, Dollar, we'll cooperate. 
Now, I don't mind telling you, we love this place. Look, it's the only real home we got. Flippy and Sadie, we got Bull and Mary and me and Nora. Maybe, maybe we got records, all right. Uh, some of us maybe did time for some of the little jobs we pulled, huh? But we've been playing it straight since we come here all along the line. It's like I told you, Johnny. Yeah, honest. Look, that's the way we want to keep it. If the people in virtue will just leave us, keep it that way. And, and you know something? I, I don't get it. Don't get what, Lefty? Well, over 20 years, everything's been nice and okay, huh? Now they got to start this. What about the losses they've suffered? They asked me, dollar their phonies, to cover up for robbing our stuff. Nobody asked you. Oh. Maybe they think the same way about your losses. Huh? Say. Yeah. Now, where's the owner of this place, uh, Carraway? Oh, yeah, he's over in Virtue at his office. Office? Sure, he's a mayor and a police. All right. Joe and I are going over to see him. Now, now, now Johnny... Oh, no, uh... Smokey, will you please don't go? They see you guys coming from here, they're going to take a shot at you. Now, Carraway told me so. Yeah. Sure. We'll take that chance. Come on, Joe. Well, uh, I I'll tell you, Johnny. Tell I... me along the way. Come on. The more I thought about the whole thing, the sillier it all seemed. Yet it was obvious that even after 20 years, Lefty and Bull and Flippy might think of only one way to settle their problems, with a gun. And if the people of Virtue were feeling the same way. But as Joe and I walked along the main, the only street of the little town, there were no signs of hostility or even suspicion toward us. Now, now look, Johnny. If those bums back at the plantation are making this trouble... Why? Why would they, Joe? Well, that's what I don't get. But what if they don't like your interfering and decide to knock you off? Then I'll probably go to my grave unmourned, unremembered. Yeah, but you told Lefty you'd provide it for every exigent... For, well, for if anything should happen to you. Yeah, and he and the boys believed it. And if anything does, the... Huh? Yeah. All I can hope is that they keep on believing. of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, in a moment. Sometimes a quotation is a helpful thing because it points out some wisdom that helps us to lead better lives. Here's one that struck me as being very wise and true. Dr. Samuel Johnson, that wise and witty man immortalized by Boswell, said, quote, It matters not how a man dies, but how he lives, unquote. A man's life may be long or short, but the way he lives it is the important thing. It's important, no matter what he does, that he have integrity, loyalty, and honor, and a sound code of conduct. Enlisting at the age of 17, with his parents' permission, Corporal Charles L. Gilliland found himself, soon after his 18th birthday, in a narrow defile in the middle of the treacherous rocky terrain of Tongman Ni, Korea. At 2.30 a.m. that moonlit morning of April 25, 1951, Corporal Gilliland's army unit... Company I, 7th Infantry Regimental Combat Team of the 3rd Division, became the focal point of a murderous assault from Chinese Communist forces. The fighting became brutal and bloody. The brunt of the attack was directed up the defile guarded by Gilliland with his automatic rifle. The slashing barrage of small arms, automatic weapons, mortar, and artillery fire was dropping the men all around him. Gilliland faced the full force of the assault... And advancing against tremendous odds, poured a steady fire into the attacking forces and eventually halted them. For valiant and heroic conduct, Corporal Charles Gilliland was awarded the Medal of Honor. Although in age, he still may have been considered a boy, 
He had lived and died like a man. And now, Act Three of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Village of Virtue Matters. Joe Pigatello and I walked the main street of Virtue, South Carolina, unmolested, virtually unnoticed. And we found the mayor, Parley Carraway, in the little shack that served for an office. I'm also the police chief, Mr. Dollar. Don't you forget that, sir. And you found no clue as to who has been committing the robberies? No, sir. None whatsoever. But who else would do it? They're all three of them ex-gangsters. Sure. Ex-gangsters. Why, Mr. Carraway? Why would these men suddenly want to make trouble with their friends, your townspeople? I don't know. I honestly don't know. Unless, of course, they think they can take over the way they used to take over gangs in the old days. After 20 years of a happy relationship? Mr. Carraway, they never made a bit of trouble in all that time. I know it. I know it. But the fact remains that unless this trouble stops... After all, Virtue was here long before they came. Unless it stops, I say, I shall have to break their lease and make them leave the plantation. That's too fine a property, sir, to... Mr. Carraway, that plantation isn't exactly what you'd call a paying proposition for a long time, was it? Well, it has been uh, since those men leased it. Oh, they pay you pretty well for it, huh? Enough to keep it in good repair. And... Hey, that's a beautiful ring you're wearing. Huh? Oh, oh, yes. Yeah. Two and a half carat diamond, sir. Yeah. And is that your nice new car out front? Yeah, it certainly is. Ain't it pretty? About $8,000, pretty. Yeah. Hey, didn't you have a new one last year, too, Mr. Carraway? Of course. I try to have one every year. But now, gentlemen... Tell me one thing, Mr. Carraway. Uh, yes, sir? If you really think the robberies around here are going to cause so much trouble... Oh, I do. I do. That's why I contacted uh, Mr. Picatello. Well, why haven't you called in the state police? Because I am the mayor of Virtue. I'm the police department. And I can take care of these things myself. And now that you gentlemen have witnessed the bad blood between these gangsters and the people of the town, well, sir, I'm going to throw them off that plantation. In spite of all the money they've been paying you? Yes, sir, and I'm sure you gentlemen will back me up in... Uh, all the money, did you say? Enough to keep you well-dressed, well-fed, and fancy cars. And now look here, sir. Do you realize how much that property will bring? Well, that depends. How much have you been offered? I'll tell you how much. 124000 ah. How did you know? You just told me. Well, now, listen. You also it? told me why you've been robbing the people of virtue and those men at the plantation to stir up bad feeling, uh, give you an excuse to get them out. What? Johnny, you're right. Uh, now, just... just Carraway, if I do call in the state police, it'll be to have you locked up. No. And if Joe here has any sense, he'll tell the insurance company to bring charges of fraud against you. You said it. Oh, but the money. Think of all the money I could make selling the old place. Now, where's the stuff that's been stolen? It hasn't been harmed. It's stored away, carefully stored away. I was going to give it back when, when those men left, and, and I could sell the place. Give them their stuff, too? Well, I'd make up for it in cash, every cent of it in cash, yes. 